This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, welcome everybody to our second to last installment of Playlist this week as we feature some Stevie Wonder. You know, life is just a little better. Some days you need Stevie. You just need some Stevie in your life. And so today we just inserted uh, some Stevie Wonder into this moment. I'm going to talk about uh, really a a book today that I think as we dive into that, uh, you're going to see that there's a lot of wisdom in it for us today. Uh, We've been featuring uh, some songs during this series, but also books that correspond from that out of the Minor Prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, we have one more week. That'll be next week. And uh, we, this has been such a good series, and I can't wait uh, for next week as we kind of wrap it up. But just to let you know where we're going in the month of August, we're doing a series called On the House. And uh, for every week in that month, uh, spe- speakers who we love, who we have a relationship with, are coming in to be a part of of our, our services and to speak to us. Uh, the first week, Ronnie Russell, who serves our church as one of our overseers, Ronnie pastored for 35 plus years in the western end of our county and uh, a pioneer in the faith in, in our local communities. Uh, I love Ronnie. Uh, he is very special to me personally. Um, and, and he's going to be here. He'll be here the first week in August. The second week, my friend Jason Burbacher, who pastors uh, Faith Church in Somerville, South Carolina, the very first church that I ever worked at. Uh, he is going to be here. Jason is about as funny as anybody I've, I've ever been around and, and loves Jesus as a, a great communicator, leading a phenomenal church. And I, I love him. He's going to be here second week. My friend Shane, uh, Shane Olson, who pastors Decibel Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. I serve as one of Shane's overseers. And he's going to be here in that third week. And, and lastly, one of my, my friends who has been an overseer of our church since day one, before we ever met in, in person, Jonathan Pearson, author of several books, leads a phenomenal church in Greenville, South Carolina. Maybe the first person outside of my family to believe that we could do this in a small town. Um, Really, he's going to be here the last week. It's every week is going to be so good. Don't miss one of those. And if you don't know this, we're right around the corner from our 10th birthday. It's hard to believe we've been doing this for almost a decade now. And in September, we'll celebrate that. And I decided that instead of a bunch of parties... I'm going to declare what uh, what happened a lot by the the prophets. I'm going to declare a week of seeking God. We're actually going to call it Seek Week. And we're we're going to take what we've done in the past for 21 days of prayer and fasting, and and we're just going to amplify it for one week. We're going to go after God. We're, We're going to fast. We're going to pray every night that week. We're going to have a prayer service at our downtown campus. We're going to combine on Wednesday night with our students to do that together. Um, It's going to be a a phenomenal, and it's going to culminate on Saturday with Serve Day. We're going to go into our community, and we're going to serve, and uh, we've got projects that we're working to line up to serve in our community, and you'll have a chance to be a part of that. It's going to be a lot of fun. I want you to be a part of that week. 
Now, I want to review where we are when it comes to this series, the talking about the minor prophets, you know, just kind of understanding the setting of what we're going to look at today. If you look at the history of God and his people, God has good intentions, but his people continue to rebel against us, uh, against him. And as, as his people rebel against him, God over and over again raises up a prophet. To speak to them. You might say, well, what does a prophet do? Simply put, a prophet shares the word of the Lord with the people of God. They hear from God, they get God's word, and then they speak it to the people of God. And it's not really that God was trying to make a point. You know, I've told you this before. You can make a point or you can make a difference, but you rarely get to make both. And in truth, God, through the prophets, is trying to make a difference. That's why there's a pattern in the the prophetic message. It's a, a word of judgment followed by a word of hope. You're doing this. If you keep doing this, this is what's going to happen. But if you'll turn back to me, here's the hope. See, God intended to use the prophets to turn the hearts of his people back to himself. In the Old Testament, there were four major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel. There were 12 minor prophets. That's what we're featuring. Books that many of us maybe have never read before. A major prophet was not more important. They just simply, out of the volume, they wrote a majority of it. Those books are long, often 40, 30 chapters. The, the minor prophets are two, three, sometimes one chapters. The minor prophets include stories that we're familiar with. The book of Jonah, the story of Jonah and the whale comes out of a minor prophet. God speaks to Jonah, go to Nineveh, speak, tell them that I've judged them. And Jonah's like, I don't want to go because I know that there's hope behind your judgment. I know, and, and we don't like, they're, they're Assyrians. And we'll talk about why that was a big deal in just a moment. And he doesn't want to go and runs away and God gets him there. That's the story of the fish. And then what happens? He declares the word of God. And the people respond by repenting. And that's why you find him at the end very upset at God. God, why, why are you so merciful to people who seem to be so bad? In the first week of this series, we started with the book of Micah. And we saw that in a time of economic prosperity and increasing disobedience, Micah invited the people of God to live justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God as the world changed around them. We focused in on the verse Micah 6, 8. And I, I think it's still a verse that today, if many of us would adopt those very simple principles, it would change how we navigate our world. And then we looked at the book of Obadiah. Obadiah, this prophetic uh, judgment against the people of Edom who sat by and watched as Jerusalem was destroyed. And Obadiah showed us that God holds supreme power and will ultimately, in the end, he will right the wrong things in this world. And then last week, if you weren't here, please go back. And listen to that message. It's so helpful. Looking at the book of Joel. Joel reminded us that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Even as we endure seasons of suffering. Such a profound book. And we looked at that last week. Now today we're going to look at another book that for many of us we've never read. It's one of the 12 minor prophets. The book of Habakkuk. And it's important with all of these to kind of paint the timeline and the period in which they're writing because you have to understand that to understand what God is saying. And 
for Habakkuk. He's after the, the kingdoms had divided, the kingdom of Israel is now the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. And if you know the history, the, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, gets conquered by the Assyrians. And then more than likely for Habakkuk, now the Assyrian empire has fallen and the Babylonians have come in to conquer the northern kingdom. So I'm studying for this message, just kind of reviewing the timeline. I came upon this quote by Dr. David Baker. It said, the kingdom of Judah had witnessed, and this is the southern kingdom, they had witnessed the downfall and exile of her northern sister Israel slightly more than a century or a hundred years previously. She herself, is the Judah, the southern kingdom, had not learnt, however, that repeated violation of the covenant with God on her part would not be left unpunished forever. She would now, according to the prophet, this is Habakkuk, be faced with a similar fate herself. And it's actually what they would have seen happening in the northern kingdom with the invasion and the conquering of the Assyrians by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were brutal. I mean, brutal. We, we have allowed some stories in the Bible to be shaped by the fact that we saw them in like flannel grams and VBS. Daniel in the lion's den, the throwing of a young man to hungry lions. The three Hebrew boys sentenced to be put in the incinerator. They were brute. They would literally, when they sieged Jerusalem, literally, I mean, families just dying of starvation, dying of not getting clean water. It was a brutal regime. They would destroy cities. They enslaved the bright and promising youth out of those cities, and then they plundered all of their wealth. I tried to think of a modern-day comparison, and there is probably none better than ISIS, the militant Islamic regime that has had significant power over the last decade. Just stories from that that, if you've ever heard, I mean, just there, there's some brutal, so brutal that I wouldn't repeat them in here, but you know, they'd go into communities and find Christians and they'd drag the dad out into the street in front of his family and just dare renounce Christ or we're going to kill you. And if they wouldn't renounce Jesus, they'd execute him right in front of his family. Took over a, a bus. Of, of Christians in Egypt and brought them off one by one, asking them to renounce Christ. And when they wouldn't, they shot them right in front of everybody. You know, sometimes we need a story to kind of echo where we, we need our hearts to be. And there was no story for me that exemplified the way that ISIS was, like the story of Kayla Mueller. That's a picture of Kayla and her mom. Some of us have pictures like that with our moms, don't we? Maybe you're the mom and you're thinking, I've, I've taken some photos like that with my daughter. Kayla was a young girl fresh out of college who had traveled the world and done missions work. And as a young Christian, she felt God calling her to go overseas. 
when ISIS began to take control of Syria, it was in that moment that she felt like God had really given her her calling. And so partnering with multiple missions organizations, she traveled and went to work doing humanitarian work, trying to make sure people had food and trying to make sure there was clean water. And eventually, if you know the story, Kayla's going to be abducted by ISIS as an American, as a Christian. She's not executed. As a matter of fact, instead of that, which is, this is, it's brutal. She's put in forced servitude to one of the leaders of ISIS. You don't have to use too much of your imagination to figure out what that meant. She smuggled a letter out with a young woman that she had befriended. And it's just chicken scratch all over the paper. It's a letter to her mom and dad. And in that letter, I'd encourage you, if you're ever having a tough time, Google Kayla Mueller letter and read it. In that letter, she says, I've, I've never known darkness like this but the light of Jesus has never been more real to me than it is in this moment shortly after that letter was published in American outlets ISIS executed Kayla after years of her parents trying to to get her extradited, just the news that she had been killed. You know, the thing is, is that that's where Habakkuk was. And Habakkuk is watching this kind of turmoil unfold around him. And he's wondering a question that I think in some ways many of us have asked. How can a good God allow this kind of evil? In this simple three-chapter book, we're going to see three things, and I'm going to show you this, and then we're going to go back and examine them together. Number one, we see that when we have the right attitude, it's okay to talk back. How many of y'all are like, I don't want my kids to hear that ever? Because it is not talking back in my family. We do not talk back. But Habakkuk, is at, he's actually going to talk back to God. This is a very unique, because in, in all the rest of the minor prophets, the prophets hear from God to speak to the people. But Habakkuk actually questions God and then has a conversation with him. When we have the right attitude, it's okay to talk. Number two, when the world feels out of control, God is still in control. How many of y'all need to be reminded of that today? Even when I look around and the world feels broken and messed up, God is still in control. And then lastly, our decision to live by faith in God unlocks joy in the midst of our suffering. So let's talk about talking back. <laughs> you know, the Bible's actually filled with people who talk back to God and then they suffer for it. There's a ton of examples out of the Old Testament, but, but let's even just fast forward to the New Testament just so you can see it's the same God. In the very first chapter of Luke, there's an old guy named Zacharias who's never been able to have kids, and God speaks. You're going to have, and, and he talks back to God with a little bit of doubt. 
And God's like, you ain't going to talk. I'm going to take your voice. The entire pregnancy, you will remain silent. Just talking back to God. And it goes even further. You go to Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of land, and then they talk back to God about what they're going to do with the money. And God doesn't just take their voice. He takes their life. Habakkuk shows us something different, though. He shows us how to talk back to God. We're going to go to the very opening of the book as he begins to have that conversation. And look at what he says. How long, Lord, must I call out for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, there's violence, but you do not save. The law is paralyzed, and even justice never prevails. The, The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. If we're going to learn to do this right, I want you to see something that's very present in the words of Habakkuk. And that's this, the first thing in your notes. Habakkuk knows who God is and recognizes his dependence on him. He knows who God is. And he knows that in his life, he's dependent on God. That's why he says, I call out for help, God. Where are you? I'm calling out then you do not save. Why does he say, I call for help, and you don't say, I'm calling for help because I can't do it. I'm not, you're not saving. I can't save them. It's as if he's reminding us of this very simple question. Who is God? It's not me. It's not me. And some of y'all are going, yeah, I mean, duh, no. Listen, the truth is, is that for many of us in this room, we act like God. We act like our own God. You might be saying, how do, how do I act like How do I act like God? Let me give you three simple ways. Number one, we tell God what to do because we assume that our way is better. God, you need to get these people over here to do this. And God, it needs to rain. And God, this needs to happen. And this needs to happen. Why don't you make this person do that? Why are they doing that? For some of you, that's the only way you know how to pray. Is telling God what he needs to do. Why do we take that posture? Because we assume we know better than God. It's literally you playing God to God. You need to do this. You make this happen. If you don't do this, I'm going to be mad. How else do we do it? We doubt the character of God because we see ourselves as good. Now, this is a tough one. But you need to see this so that you can take it away. All right? If you've ever looked at God and say, how can you be good if you're letting this happen? Who's defining good? You are. You are. And I don't know about you, but I know I make a bad referee of what's good. I can imagine in those moments God looking at Kevin. What, Kevin? I've known you since you were born. I've seen every stupid thing you've done, and I know the absolutely ridiculous thoughts that float around in your head. Who do you think you are to think that you're some standard of good? 
Anytime we do that, how could a good God let? All that's happened is we've let ourselves become the standard of good. You're playing God. Here's another way. We disobey God because we think we know better. Because we think we know, right? How many times has God told you to forgive somebody that hurt you and you said no? No. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know how that made me feel. You don't know what I'm living in the aftermath of that. As if he doesn't. The simplest illustration of this is money. God has a very simple plan for financial resources. He blesses you. You have increase. 10% of that belongs to God. It's a faith challenge. Return it back to God. Acts of mercy and justice and charity flow on top of that. This is exactly what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. Tithe, yes. Don't neglect mercy and justice, yes. So what does that mean? It literally means that out of everything that is your increase, you don't own 10% of it. God does. And he's like, give it back to me. Here we go. Prove that you can be trusted. Faithful with a little, I'll bless you with more. That's why when you go to another minor prophet, the book of Malachi, and he's like, listen, one thing I have against you is that you're robbing me. And the people go, how are we robbing you? And God goes, you're stealing my tithe. How can you rob something that belongs to you? You can't. It belongs to God. Why do we disobey God financially? Because we think we know a better way. Play God. That's what it is. You playing God. And Habakkuk, from point entry, understands that he's not God and he needs God. There's another thing that's here too. I want you to see this is number two. Habakkuk wants God and the ways of God to win. And he's like, look, God, I want you to win. I'm on your team. I want your ways to win. I want people to be obedient and righteous. Notice what he said, verse four, the law is paralyzed. More than likely, Habakkuk was a priest. His whole job was teaching the law, instructing people on how to live for God. And he's going, look, God, I mean, the law is literally, it's paralyzed. People are not living for you. Justice never prevails. It really is summed up in what he says in verse four, the wicked him in the righteous. What does it mean to be him? It means to be restricted. I, I, I can't do what I'm supposed to do. I can't live the way I'm supposed to live. For Habakkuk, he's chosen his team. He's on God's team, but he's looking around. And it's like, I, I feel like we're losing God. Can I just remind you of some? Some of your egos get in the way. Because when you get into conflicts, you want to win. I've told you this before. This is such a brilliant principle, and you see this in Habakkuk, if Jesus wins, we all win. Some of y'all need to get out of your own way and decide, in my finances, I want Jesus to win. In my marriage, I want Jesus to win. In my parenting, I want Jesus to win. And sometimes for Jesus to win, you got to lose. But if Jesus wins, you ultimately win. Here's kind of the, the gist of what's happening here. If you're taking notes, it's number three. Through humility, 
we can approach God with our questions through humility. That's the posture that Habakkuk has in this. He's humbled himself. And the truth is you have that choice in life. You can choose to humble yourself or you can navigate life through pride. Now, pride manifests in different ways. It can manifest in arrogance. It can manifest in insecurity. Arrogance says what? It says, I'm more important. Insecurity says, I'm less important. I'm more capable. I'm less capable. Pride always makes you the issue. Humility makes the right thing. Jesus, others, the issue. And that's why pride will turn your questions into sin. Because pride will co-opt your questions and make them all about you. God, why are you not being good in this? God, why aren't you doing this my way? It'll turn your questions into sin because it'll manifest out of your pride. It's not what's happening here with Habakkuk. Last week, we talked about lamenting, processing grief, processing disappointment, processing hurt and trials. This actually, this whole book is a good example of it. Now, the truth is that when it comes to the way some of us grew up, we were taught to never talk back. Don't you talk back to me. Y'all remember that? Y'all ever get smacked in the face for talking back to your mom? I mean, just, you know. My, my daughter does not need to raise her hand right now. Just saying. We're taught that. And, and in an unhealthy way, some of us were taught, you never question. You never ask questions. Don't you question me. I've come to see this. It's healthy to have questions for Jesus. It's healthy. In our faith walk, in this journey with God through life, it is healthy to have some questions for God. But it's not healthy to question Jesus as if I were God. I'm not God. I'm not right. I'm not even good. When I come with a question, it's got to be out of humility and a desire to understand. Even though the world is in chaos. Even though the world is in chaos. And that's exactly what's happening here with Habakkuk. Habakkuk questions God. I don't understand this. And God actually answers him. It's insane. It's insane. Look at verse 5 as God begins to answer Habakkuk. Look at what he says. Look at the nations and watch. And be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. Oh, what's God going to do? God's going to throw down the enemy. He's going to elevate us. It's going to happen. Deliverance is coming. And then in the very next verse, he says this, I am raising up the Babylonians that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings, not their own. What? What, God? You're doing what? 
even explains a little bit more. Verses 9 through 11. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at fortified cities as they build earthen ramps to capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind. This is how God describes them. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. I want you to see something. And this is so important. Where Habakkuk saw chaos, God shows him purpose. Habakkuk says, I don't understand what's happening. I don't see it. I mean, God, look at all this world. It's in chaos. And God's going, no. I'm, I'm the one behind this. What, the, the Babylonians? God, you're, you're raising them up? This is, this is unheard of. The, the problem for many of us in comprehending this is that we only understand the will of God by understanding his perfect will, okay? To explain this, because I want to explain this tension for a moment, God's perfect will is his perfect design for life, uncorrupted by sin. It is what God would want for you if sin had never entered the world, you had never made a sinful decision, and the people around you did not make sinful decisions. God's perfect will. How God would have scripted it and designed it out of his foresight, his, all of his love for you. But how many of y'all know that ain't the world we live in? Sin entered the world, broke our nature. I've never had to teach my kids how to be bad. They find out the way to do that on their own. There's a broken, sinful nature in us that has to be redeemed. But in all of that, it's important to know that God is still sovereign, which means that God reigns as supreme king and ruler over all the world. He holds power. He has the final say. And his sovereignty is over all things, including evil and suffering. Which means that we need to know that while we don't live in God's perfect will, we still live in God's sovereign will. And God's sovereign will reflects the simple fact that nothing exists outside of God. Nothing. Y'all may have been, you know, praying about a, a career change before and flipping through the Bible and seeing the book of Job and you started reading it and then you realize this is not about jobs or careers. It's the book of Job. And the book of Job is a book about suffering, about, a book about how God is, is sovereign over our suffering, how he uses our suffering. And how in the end, when we look back after the seasons of suffering, we'll see that God is at work. The, the Bible says in Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. There is nothing that you have ever encountered in your life that happened outside the sovereignty of God. That means pain and difficulty and trial and challenge. The, all of that and in all of it, I, I've told you, we got to walk away from labeling things as bad. It might be challenging. It might be difficult. But even in the middle of a difficult season, God's got a good gift for you because God will not waste your pain. 
You see Habakkuk's love. I'm raising up the Babylonians, and Habakkuk responds. Look at how he responds. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You can't tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You can see, I mean, he's deep respect for who God is, but he still doesn't understand. God, why are you allowing this? If you're, if you're bringing judgment on us from them, how, why are you allowing that in them? And then God answers again. The, the second chapter is, is, is really recording a lot of that last dialogue. And God answers in Habakkuk 2, the cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you. And disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. The cup of the Lord's right hand. If you remember, Jesus prayed in the garden, God, let this cup pass from me. The, the phrase, the cup of the Lord, is the wrath of God. And God is saying, listen, I, I want you to know, Habakkuk, the, the cup of the Lord is coming your way, but it's not just for you. Eventually, it will come for the Babylonians too. I want you to see something here. This is so important. Number two in your notes. In seasons of chaos, God is working in ways you cannot see or understand. It's exactly what he told Habakkuk. If I, if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't understand it. Even if I told you. It's amazing how God works in our world. How God can take something that is broken to bring healing. How God can take something that is wrong to provoke something that becomes right. God will use an injustice to cultivate justice in our lives. God will use the broken and the lost things in our lives to get us right. Some of y'all have been there. You've been there in those moments when you've made all the wrong turns, but somehow God got you to the right place. God will use it. It's as if Habakkuk is reminding us, even when you don't understand it, God is in control. He's in control. You don't see it right now. There will come a day that you will. You don't understand it right now, but there will come a day that you will. Even in the middle of chaos, even in the middle of chaos, we're invited to live a different way, to live faithfully to God. In Habakkuk chapter 2, there's a verse that is, is so pivotal in the canon of Scripture, it changed almost itself the New Testament. It's echoed in the book of Romans by the Apostle Paul. And then it became the pivotal verse for Martin Luther in the reformation of the church. Habakkuk 2 verse 4 says, See the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Oh, there's an, look, the enemy's arrogant. 
He thinks he knows what's going on. He thinks he's got it all figured out. He knows the way that this is going to go. He thinks he's, it looks like he's winning right now. But I want you to know that those who live in faith in God, they will be right with God. They will be made right. It's as if Habakkuk, so, so simply, this gets echoed again in Romans. The righteous will live by faith. This becomes the, the simple verse that provokes the theology of justification by faith alone out of Martin Luther. It's as if he's showing us uh, thousands of years ago, you got two ways to live. You can live by pride or you can live by faith. See, choosing to live by faith is an act of humility. It is. You can't live by pride and by faith. Faith is believing in something you can't see and don't understand. Pride is I understand it. I got it all figured out. It's impossible to live right when you're living through pride. Because all it does is it elevates you and your ways and your thoughts. And this is how I think it should be. And I'm the core issue. If you're wondering, how do I, how do I navigate seasons of chaos? The only way to get things right in times of chaos is through faith. Because when things are chaos all around you, you will not understand it. You won't see it. You might not even like it or accept it. You're going to have to navigate it through faith. And here's the thing. So many of us, our lives are not actually being lived through faith. We're being... We're living our lives through understanding and rational decision-making and navigating it by our feelings and what I see and understand. Faith is the only way to get through seasons of chaos. And it's important. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible. Your life will never become pleasing to God until you're a person who lives by faith. But oh, when we finally say, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't know how God's going to work it out, but I trust that he is. I don't see the end, but I know God's got it out there. I'm going to follow him. I'm gonna, something about that kind of life becomes pleasing to God. And God shows Habakkuk, this is where we are. This is what's coming. There's judgment coming against Judah. It's going to be the Babylonians. But you don't worry about them, okay, because I'm going to take care of them later on. The third chapter of the book of Habakkuk is a poem that he writes. It's actually a psalm. You know, I told you last week that as we lament, we process grief and sorrow and disappointment. That part of the processing is expressing, again, a great illustration. As he's wrapping up the book, I want you to look at this verse, verse 16. I heard it and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. What's he, he's talking about when God said, this is what's going to happen. I'm raising up the Babylonians. He's, I felt like I died inside. But look at this. Yet will I wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. God, you show me you're in control. I know I can trust you. I don't, I don't have to have it all figured out. I know that one day you're going to ultimately right the wrong things in this world. I'm going to be patient. Now look at where he goes in the next few verses. Though the fig tree 
does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine. And though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will. What would you do? I would be saying, God, I'll stay faithful to you. I'm going to weep and I'm going to grieve and I'm going to cry. I'm going to pray. I'm not going to give up going to church. I'm going to stay faithful to you. Look at what he says. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The Lord is my strength. Please look at this. The choice to live by faith unlocks joy in the midst of deep suffering. If you can, in the middle of of times when I don't understand it, it doesn't make sense. I don't know how this is ever going to work out. If you can take a step back and say, I'm going to anchor my heart into Jesus Christ through faith. What's going to happen is that your happiness is not going to be determined by your circumstance. See, some of us just want happiness. You know what happiness is? Happiness is something that comes when you have control and you have understanding. But joy is something different. It's not conditional. I can have joy when things aren't even going my way. I can be in the middle of a storm in my life and still have joy. See, the only path to joy flows through faith. It's the only way. It's the only way to joy. And it's as if Habakkuk is daring us to see the world through faith. Let the faith that you have in God determine the way you see things, to change the way you see difficulties and challenges and suffering. See, most of us only see the world through facts, feelings, and what we understand. But Habakkuk couldn't see that. He couldn't see what was happening. And he, he talked back to God and God showed him and I believe God showed him so that he could show us this. That even when the world doesn't make sense, God is still in control. I want to take a moment. I want to invite you today to choose faith. When you don't understand, when you can't see the outcome, when when you don't even want to accept what you're going through, to choose faith. Because by choosing faith, you can choose joy. You can choose joy. And in the middle of deep suffering, difficult and challenging times, can still find the joy of the Lord to be your strength. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.